You just have to decide the first thing is where you want to live and what your requirements are for a house tax. You decide both qualitatively, like what what are you okay with the property having? Do you need land? Do you not care if it has land? Do you want a garage, no garage, basement? If you buy a duplex, do you want up down? Do you want side by side, townhouse style, or garden style? Like what type of property do you want to live in? And so you got to define that first and then define the financial piece of it. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lode, and today our guest is Robert Leonard, and he's written a book on house hacking called The Everything Guide to House Hacking. Today, he's teaching us about house hacking, what house hacking is, how to do it well, new strategies that are kind of just hitting the market now that people are using in higher end real estate how we can think about profitability versus comfort. This is a new idea. I haven't come across this one. He came up with a fantastic way to think about house hacking. A lot of lessons in this one. If you're interested in house hacking, you want to earn some passive income through the real estate that you live in and use the awesome terms that you can get on owner-occupied properties, this is one to listen to. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Boat. I'm a real estate investor, and I invest in commercial, multifamily, and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is Robert Leonard. Here we go. Robert, thank you for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do, your podcast, and what you invest in? Yeah, absolutely. So my background originally was in stock investing. I originally spent about eight to 10 years, starting at 14, studying every single thing I could about Warren Buffett. We went out to Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, accidentally stumbled into real estate through an accidental house hack. And then the rest is kind of history from there. I've invested in real estate primarily. I still do invest in stocks, but most of my focus and time and energy goes into real estate with just a little bit of time into the stock market these days. Also do some other, other little bit of investing. I, I do some RV investing as well with RV rentals. So that's a little bit unique. And also I host one of the most popular real estate and millennial investing podcasts for all things personal finance, stock investing, real estate. New author, just uh, wrote my first book and it will be releasing shortly depending on when this comes out. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty much everything I do. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Yeah, you have a, a big time podcast. So today I want to dig into the topic of the book that you recently wrote and it will be out by the time uh, we go live here. So the everything guide to house hacking and topic of the book being house hacking, very popular topic, especially for younger investors. Although I'm a millennial as well. I think when we say millennials, folks often think of, you know, 18 year olds, but I'm well into my thirties now as many of us are. But to me, house hacking is kind of pitched as something that is best for young people who are fresh out of college, but that's not necessarily uh, the case. So can you give us a rundown of how you think about house hacking? What is house hacking? Yeah. So the simplest way that I explain house hacking is that it's purchasing a property with the goal of 
renting out additional space that you're not going to use to reduce your living expenses. So that could be a single family home where you rent out extra bedrooms, could even be you rent out the garage. It could be, you can get kind of creative with it, or it can be the more traditional kind of what house hacking started as, which was a multifamily property, typically a duplex or triplex, maybe a fourplex, where you live in one of the units and, and rent out the others. And you mentioned that there is, it's typically towards younger demographic. And I would say that that's true. Although what's great about house hacking is that it can scale to kind of the lifestyle that you want. And so I developed as I was writing this book, kind of this concept of a comfort versus profitability, like metric or graph. And basically it's a graph with comfort on the X axis and profitability on the Y axis. And if anybody's watching the video, it kind of, kind of exponentially goes from you know, the bottom left up to the top right in, in a slight curve. And basically what it's telling you is that as you go right on the x-axis, as you give up more comfort and because the, com- the, the x-axis is comfort given up. And so as you give up more comfort, your profitability goes up. And so when you are young, yeah, maybe you implement a strategy that has a little bit more comfortability given up. Maybe you're farther to the right on the x-axis. Maybe you're getting a little bit more profitability because of that. But as you get a little bit older, maybe you still, you don't mind house hacking. And so, but you come back a little bit, you come more towards the left and you don't give up very much comfort. And instead you're not as profitable, but you're still house hacking. And so I've talked to some people that own multi-million dollar mansions in Arizona, just one location as an example, and they have an ADU in the backyard. And they have a, somebody, they short-term rental it out and it does pretty well and it reduces their cost of the, the main house that they live in. It's basically in the backyard. So they never really, like they don't live next to the tenant. I would argue that they're giving up no comfortability basically. And so, you know, you, and these people are very well off and they're older, they're in their forties. And, and so they're still house hacking. So I definitely think it's possible to do at, at any age, those people now, they're not going to be the ones that are going to do a single family rent by the room where they're living with their buddies and they rent out maybe three or four extra bedrooms that they have. But that's what's great about house hacking is that you can customize it. You can scale it up or down to to fit your exact situation. Nice. Okay. So can we define ADU a little bit? Because I had that abbreviation might not be readily apparent to everybody out there who's uh, listening. Yeah. ADU is just what's called an accessory dwelling unit. Basically just like a Technically, they don't even have to be standalone. They can be attached to the main dwelling, but it's basically just a separate structure where you can live. Typically, it's all encompassed. It's got a kitchen, bathroom, dining area, living room, things like that, bedrooms typically, but it's very small usually. Think of like a studio apartment kind of that's detached from the main dwelling. Uh, It can be attached, sometimes basements, sometimes like an attached unit, but Typically, an ADU is is going to be your detached kind of living structure. Okay. So, and we've seen some areas, like I think in in California, maybe LA, has somewhat recently passed legislation to make ADUs a bit easier, more uh, straightforward. Are we seeing that kind of happening across the country? Is it still kind of a a niche thing in in some areas? Uh, I don't know too, too well in terms of laws, like across the whole Mm -hmm. country, but I do know where I live. You're pretty much allowed to have an ADU anywhere. Uh, it's there's no real. I mean, you still have to get you know your permitting and things like that. But if you live within certain zones, it pretty much can add an ADU, no problem. Uh, I have heard cities like you said in California, LA, things like that. They're starting to allow ADUs even more easily because it's a 
fight against affordable housing. It's it's a way to provide more housing at a pretty affordable cost. So I have heard of that across the country, but in terms of just generally, I'm not sure exactly how easy it is for all ADUs. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So I like this idea of quantifying or, or graphing comfort given up versus profitability. That's an interesting way to think about it. So as we think on the extreme end, we have the ADU at a mansion where you don't really see it very often. That would be presumably not quite as profitable compared to renting by the room, by a single family, renting by the room. You're giving up a lot of comfort. So that would presumably be the more profitable scenario. Yeah, exactly. So one would be much lower on the profitability, much more to the left on the comfort given up side. And then the other would be on the more profitable side and more comfort given up. Now, there are caveats to that where that person in Arizona, if they did a long-term rental, it would fit the model perfectly. With a short-term model, depending on how much they do it, how serious they take it, short-term rentals can actually be very profitable. So it is possible that they are actually not giving up much comfort and they are making actually quite a bit of profit. Like that is definitely possible. But generally speaking, this I found this kind of relationship to hold true. And and especially with kind of your four units, you know, with a four unit property, you're not giving up a lot of comfortability. You're definitely giving up some, you're not giving up a ton. And so therefore that might be a little bit less profitable than maybe some, some other strategies. Okay. So one of the things I wonder about this is finding the right deal. I mean, you have to live there, right? So you're not going to give up every single possible comfort. Hopefully you're not going to give up and live in somewhere you don't want to live. If you're st- still have a job, you know, commute two hours each way just to get a, a a single family house hack. So how do you think about finding the right deal for you or any any given investor who wants to do a house hack? How do you like kind of program that strategy of finding the right property? So you just have to decide the first thing is where you want to live and what your requirements are for a house hack. You decide both qualitatively, like what what are you okay with the property having? Do you need land? Do you not care if it has land? Do you want a garage, no garage, basement? If you buy a duplex, do you want up down? Do you want side by side townhouse style or garden style? Like what type of property do you want to live in? And so you got to define that first and then define the financial piece of it. How much are you willing to pay? So when you house hack, just for easy numbers, let's just say your total mortgage, which I know in most places is going to be significantly higher, but just for easy math, let's say it's $1,000 a month and you know you can get $500 in rent for the other side, your difference is $500, right? That's what you would have to pay. Are you okay with that? Are you willing to pay $500 to live under those conditions? Some people are, some people aren't. In that you just have to decide that. So you decide the financial and the qualitative piece. And then from there, you see if it fits your area. And if it does, great, you have a great fit. And if it doesn't, then you kind of need to decide whether you're willing to sacrifice on some of those other things so that you can do it in the area that you uh, live in or want to live in. If not, you have to think about if you're willing to maybe move 15, 20 minutes further away or to a different city or different area and just see what puzzle pieces, basically it's a big puzzle and you have to move these puzzle pieces around until they all fit together into something that you're happy with. Okay. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So in this vein, especially when we're talking about longer term rentals, or we're going to be dealing with the tenants for more than, you know, maybe a week at the most, you got to think about how you're going to find the right tenants versus the wrong tenants and, and sort through them. So how do you think about that process, especially in the context of a house hack, 
it's very different from just finding tenants for a rental property you're renting out. You're going to kind of share some space with these folks. So how do you go through sorting through tenants? So I actually think that this part starts when you are defining your criteria for the property that you're going to purchase or that you're willing to live in. So this is not to... So basically, if you buy in a, a four-unit apartment building and not so great of an area or not a great city, you can just, if you just spend some time thinking about that, you can think of what type of people are probably going to live there. Like it's going to be more like an apartment and that's a different type of person that's going to live in the apartment than somebody who's going to, if you buy a nice duplex with maybe a little bit of a nice yard and a really nice school district, things like that. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. It's just, what are you okay with? What are you, what what type of person do you want to live with? And you have to think about if you were searching for these types of properties, what type of person might that be? Is you That's the very first thing is to think about who is going to live in the type of property that you're looking at buying. The second thing from there is set your criteria. And so set your credit score requirements, background checks, what, you know, if there's any legal issues, anything like that, what are you okay with? What are you not okay with? How much are you requiring that your potential tenant makes, how much, you know, what is the minimum credit score you would like? And so this is not not a a hard and fast rule. Of course, there are many great, great, great people that don't make a ton of money or that don't have great credit scores. But just generally speaking, somebody who has a little bit higher credit score or a little bit higher paying job is generally a better person to uh, live next to. Typically, they take care of the property a little bit better on on an average scale. So Typically, I would recommend to look at those types of things. Obviously, you need to abide by all local laws and regulations. Make sure you're not doing anything illegal in terms of discrimination, things like that. You had to be consistent across all your applicants. But just if you know you're going to be living next to somebody and you're going to be really strict with it, then maybe you set your criteria a little bit higher for that property than you do maybe some of your rentals that you're not living. Okay. Okay. So something we think about when we buy property, especially if we're going to fix it up, is getting it to the right point, not over repairing or, or overdoing the property and spending too much going overboard. And obviously not underdoing it, right? We want the place to be functional and, and nice and we're going to live there too. So how do you target and, and think about doing the right amount of renovation and really optimizing the the dollars that you're investing in, in a property? Yeah, I mean, that process is pretty much the same for any, if you're doing a flip or you're doing a traditional rental, I mean, it's kind of the same approach. In theory, you you are you are house hacking, but in theory, that second unit that you're doing a renovation to, it's just a rental unit and you can kind of basically, on its own, It's that's all it is. It's like it's, as if you had bought in a, a rental unit anywhere else, you treat it the same way. So you don't want to, like you said, you don't want to over renovate, you don't want to put in granite countertops and, you know, et cetera, unless unless that fits. Like if you're buying, there are some very, very nice duplexes in, in around the country that are in great areas with great school districts, nice yards, et cetera. And they're very, very nice. And in that case, maybe you do need granite countertops. So you kind of have to get a, get a pulse on the area. Are you buying a four unit? That's not in the best area. Maybe you can get away with laminate countertops. Maybe you don't need the best finishes. So you really have to be on top of, of what is normal. What's what's right for your area. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's the way we think about just general rentals is, you know, looking at the market and and everything out there. 
So another thing I wonder about is the logistics of the financial aspects, everything like collecting rent, right? Are you going to take checks from somebody? Are you going to try to use a, a third party payment service or just to make things streamline and all that? What are your thoughts on using a piece of software and technology versus just taking checks from especially long-term tenants? So my understanding is you can't force somebody to use, and I mean, I think it depends on the state. So don't quote me here. I, I have a a friend or a student that I coach who lives in New Jersey. And I believe in New Jersey, you're not allowed to force somebody to pay uh, electronically. You have to be able to, you have to accept the check or, or cash. So, uh, you know, check with your state in terms of like laws and regulations. But what I do is I highly, highly recommend and try to push people to electronic payments, regardless tenant, uh, house acts, long-term rentals, long distance rentals, whatever it is. I try to get people to do electronic uh, it's just easier for everybody. They don't. They can set up automatic payments. A lot of times, they can use their credit card to make payments. It's it's just honestly easier and simpler for everybody. Again, you live you're living next to each other in most cases, so it's not the end of the world if they write you a check and leave it in the mailbox. But then you got to go to the bank and and maybe deal with bounce checks and things like that. So for me, I really encourage as much as you can to get into an electronic platform. And I mean, really, the biggest thing is that. House hacking is kind of meant to be not your really your forever strategy. Now you can do this as many times as you want. And I mean, in theory, you can do it forever, but the idea is that you're going to do this a few times, maybe three, maybe one, two, three, four, five times. And then you're going to graduate kind of onto something else, another strategy. And you want to learn these business practices and business principles from a house hack. That's what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to teach you what to do for your future properties. So if you're taking cash and checks from these tenants, uh, you're going to be expected to do that from your other rentals when you kind of grow into that that kind of strategy. And that's not what you want to do. You want to automate that. You want to use systems and processes. You want to have an electronic platform to do that. And so I would try to learn the right way to do things right from the get-go, even with a house hack. Okay, great. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Is there any particular electronic platform that you would either recommend or point people to if they're thinking about doing a, a house hack? I mean, there are a bunch of different ones. The one I personally use is called Inago, I-N-N-A-G-O. Um, I think it's a little bit smaller of a platform, but it works really well for me. I have, I use it for all my long-term rentals, my long-distance rentals, my house hacks. I use it for everything. So I really enjoy it, but I know there's a bunch of them out there. Cool. Okay. So you kind of led us into, okay, we should be doing house hacks really just to scale up and graduate and build a business, build systems and kind of learn how to run a real estate investment portfolio. So that gets to the question of what it takes to get started. People often will say, you know, hey, go buy a house, put three and a half percent down. There's all these great loan programs out there. You don't have to do a whole lot to get a piece of property if you have a job and, you know, some level of income. But in your opinion, what's kind of the the baseline or the minimum that it takes to get started in house hacking? Yeah. I mean, what you said, I mean, technically you can get in started with 0% down. I mean, if you're a VA, if you can get a VA loan, you could house hack, you could buy a four unit property. Just think of this. You can buy a four unit multifamily property with $0 down. If you qualify for a VA loan, live there for one year and then move out and rent it out. Now you have a four unit rental property of four units in your rental portfolio and you didn't put any money down. Now, not everybody qualifies and even most people won't qualify for a VA loan. So you're looking at maybe three and a half to 5% down if you can get an FHA loan. So that's what you're looking at. Now, I do recommend that people don't get into a house hack with just the bare minimum. So let's just say for round numbers that you can get into it for $10,000, right? 
I wouldn't recommend buying a house with $10,001 in your bank account because <laughs> you need to have reserves. It's Murphy's law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. You'll have a hot water heater break. Something will happen. So you should really have some reserves set aside before you get into that property. And so for me, I like to look at three or six months of uh, the mortgage expense as a general rule of thumb. So mortgage is 2000 a month. Let's say you need 10000 to close, 10000 times you know, with 2000 times three, 6,000. So you're looking at like $16,000 to close. Now that's significantly better than if you purchased a property or a traditional rental, you need 20, 25, 30% down. So you're looking at a lot less money and kind of a little bit of a bonus tip here is for anybody that hasn't heard, I highly recommend using, especially if you're a house hacker who's trying to get started without a lot of capital is to use a seller credit. So I have personally purchased a $350,000 property before that I only had to put $12,000 down because my total down payment and closing costs came to $22,000 and I asked for $10,000 seller credit. And so I only had to come to the table with $12,000. And it's it's pretty crazy to be able to control a $350,000 asset with only a $12,000 down payment. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Great. Well, house hacking is a great strategy for folks to get started and start building passive cash flow. And now with all the short-term rental options out there, there are even more ways to build pretty substantial uh, cash flow and and live in the asset and uh, use some some very great leverage that's out there. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Robert, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I am. Let's do it. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The best investment I have ever made other than my education was probably my first house hack because it wasn't, it's not the monetary piece. I didn't make that much money off it, but I had a lot of limiting beliefs. I didn't think I could invest in real estate. I didn't think it was possible, but that taught me, kind of opened my world up to all these other people that were already doing it, brought down all my limiting beliefs and allowed me to get to where I am today. I still have a long way to go to get to where I want to be, but I've made a lot of progress in terms of where I was when that kind of revelation happened. And so I don't think any of that, anything I've done now would be possible if I hadn't bought that first house sack. Awesome. That's great. That's great. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. This one's a little more painful. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah, I don't have the tickers or the company names available. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what the companies were, but when I first started investing, again, like I mentioned, I was a really big Warren Buffett fan. And at first I was very naive. I was like, just opened my first brokerage account. I was maybe like a freshman in college. I was like eight. I had been studying him forever, but I didn't have an account to actually invest. And so when I started investing, I thought I, I thought I knew it. I thought I was like, all right, this is easy. What Buffett does is easy. And I thought I could make stock investment decisions based solely on quantitative data in financial statements. Cause I misinterpreted what Buffett was actually doing. And so 
those that's what I did. And those investments didn't turn out well for me. I realized very quickly that qualitative factors of a business have a lot of value. And so those investments uh, more or less went to zero. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but they were, they were definitely my uh, worst investments. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where I got started as well. First investing book that I read was The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. Very, you know, kind of his mentor, Warren Buffett's mentor in a way, and that got me started. But there are so many tricks to that strategy, and that's why we call Wall Street a casino. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important thing that I've learned is that 99% of people that have done great things are no different than anybody else. And, you know, there are some people who, they just kind of have another gear, you know, Buffett, maybe Bezos, Elon, you know, those kind of guys, Musk, yeah, Musk, you know, those kind of guys, they might have another like, like gear that we don't have, but for the most part, like the people just below them, like even the people that have hundreds of millions, you know, eight, nine hundred million or, or just a hundred or 200 million, they, they're no different than us. I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of them on the podcast and their kids will run in the room, dog will jump on the lap, you know, <laughs> all these things, like just normal people. And when you talk to them off air, they're just normal people. Like they don't have anything special. They just are willing to put in the work. And so for me, that was really, really helpful because I, you know, that you kind of always give yourself this out of, oh, these people are doing it. They must have something I don't have. I can't do that. And once you realize that that's not true. It, it, it's a little bit dis, it's a little bit, uh, hurtful. Cause you're like, well, I have no excuse to not do everything that I dream of. But at the same time, once you get past that, you realize that it's possible. And so for me, that was, that was the biggest thing that I've learned or, or realized. Awesome. I love that. That's so true. Uh, that's, that's a great point. And getting past our limiting beliefs is a critical part in real estate investing and meeting people who are very wealthy is a great way to get past your own limiting beliefs and learning that they're just people too. Robert, I want to thank you for joining us today, sharing all these lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to track you down, if they want to find your podcast, if they want to find your book or anything like that, where can they find you? Yeah. So first we'll start with, you can, if you want to learn more about house hacking, go to everythinghousehacking.com. Tons of resources about house hacking. If you want to find the book, it's published by one of the largest publishers in the world, Simon & Schuster. You can get the book anywhere, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Walmart, Target. It, it's everywhere. So you can just check out those websites and just search for the Everything Guide to House Hacking. It's also on the website. And then the podcasts are just simply Millennial Investing or Real Estate 101. Search those in any podcast app. You'll be able to find those there. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.